Welcome back to Digital Health 101, one of the Digital Health Today podcasts. Today we're talking about virtual reality and its application to democratizing surgical training as well as surgical care around the world. With us, we have Shafi Ahmed, who has been recognized as a leader in this space and knows it extremely well. Enjoy the conversation. Dr. Professor Shafi Ahmed on our podcast today to talk to us about the virtual surgery. You're probably the most famous surgeon on the planet. Welcome to Digital Health Today's Digital Health 101 podcast. Thanks so much, Professor Beanie. It's a delight to be here. And I'm really excited about the next half an hour of the conversation that we're going to have. So thank you so much for inviting me on your show. I've got to have the most famous virtual surgeon on the planet on the show, of course, especially talking about virtual surgery today. So Shafi, introduce yourself to our audience a little bit for us. So my name is Shafi Ahmed. I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon based out in London. I work at the Royal London Hospital. And my other interests have really been similar to South Stefano in terms of understanding digital technologies, the translation of those technologies into clinical practice, as well as in education. So I have a number of roles, both around being an innovator and entrepreneur, and also being a teacher and educator with my experience at uh, being associated in a medical school, and then sitting on the council of our own Royal College of Surgeons of England, and using that platform to improve global health standards and working across different sectors. And you also have had a long-going, long-standing interest in the democratization, the providing access to surgical techniques to populations that may not have access to them normally. And as a result, you piloted very, very early on many ways to do virtual surgery. Talk to us a little bit about that experience. You first started out with, what was the first one? What blew everybody's mind was it on? No, that was Google Glass. <laughs> That's the thing that kind of made my fame and fortune or whatever you like to call it. So if you go back, both of what you and I have been teaching students, residents, trainees for many, many years. And we've always had the challenge of how to teach them better in the OR. You know, when you're performing your complex hip replacements or knee replacements that you're doing constantly in California, you often, with a few people around the operating theater, the operating room, around the table, and often you have students from the back of the room who are not getting exposed to that kind of information. And I've often thought that we could do better. These students who come to the operating theater for 8, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes are sitting in the back of the room on their smartphones, on Snapchat or whatever, and not really engaged in that learning process. And we've assumed that was the way we could teach next generation of students. But I think we can do better. I used to think that was a way of teaching people almost through a process of what I call osmosis or diffusion. It's kind of emanating this information in this OR. And that's really historical and old-fashioned and not relevant to today's society. Our students have paid a lot of money, the privilege of being in the OR to learn, to be taught. So I thought, how can we do that better? And then the question for me was, how do we scale you know, your experience, Stefano, has been amazing. And you share that experience with a few people is amazing. What about if you could share that experience with the entire population of the world, with your experiences for many, many years, showcasing your skills, your knowledge, and improving surgical outcomes across the world? So that was the premise of what I was trying to achieve. And then what happened back in 2014 was that I was introduced to the Google Glass. And so this was, a, I guess, a groundbreaking time for me. It was having the utility, the technology suddenly available for me to suddenly find a solution that I could use it for. Yeah, a problem to solve. And so this for me was first of all teaching. So I used to be the associate dean at Bart's Medical School. Now we've been around for a long time, Stefano. It's a, the hospital itself has been around since um, the kind of 1100s, if you like. So it's an old, old institution. Yet we are also an old medical school. So I thought, how can we push that boundary further forward? So when I got the Google Glass, about 
beginning, I decided to stream a live operation. I thought if I could use that Google Glass as a smartphone device, stream video, and actually have the glass sit on my forehead as it does, stream an operation that I was performing, and see what the impact would be around the world. And the idea was that you could pick up a smartphone or an iPad or a computer, for example, go into the view from my point of view, watch the operation, see what I was doing, but also interact with me. So we had a platform where people or students around the world could text a message into their smartphone, similar mm. text messages you normally send to people, which would appear in the glass in the corner. I was operating, I could see the interaction, the questions I answered in real time and sort of, sort of use that way of teaching people. Obviously, that was way ahead of perhaps you know, what people are thinking of at the time. Well, on that occasion, it just went viral. I think I taught about 14,000 people across the globe who logged in simultaneously. I had students from places as far as Indonesia and South America. Some of my own students had gone elective abroad, were actually sitting on a beach watching me operate, for example, and watching me and, and interacting with me. And so that was my first foray to seeing how that technology that's, I guess, expensive at the time, but very user-friendly, intuitive, that basically with a smartphone, you'd access real-life knowledge of surgical expertise. So that was the example and experience I had. And it, and it went well. I mean, these things, obviously, Stefan, when you're doing it for the first time, could go horribly wrong or you could have problems with it. But thankfully, we thought about the governance, the issues around patient confidentiality, the issues around streaming, the reliability, the kind of legal issues around that kind of streaming. And we'd overcome a lot of the hurdles and barriers from that perspective. What I did individually, I learned a lot about how we are more connected than we ever realize and how we use that connectivity to the advantage of mankind. So look, actually, we can think differently, we can scale. And so that first example put me on a different trajectory in my life, which I wasn't expecting, I'll be honest with you. Before then, of course, you're a cancer surgeon, performing cancer operation, laparoscopic surgery, and that's kind of been your interest for the last however many years. And I've been a surgeon now for over 25 years now. So suddenly, everything changes. Technology is becoming more empowering. We're seeing what we can use with it. And examples we're showcasing are actually proving to be effective. So that was my first experience, which I, I share with the audience and yourself. Yeah. Now, standing in it, I think you're right. It opened up the world to the potential of virtual surgery, not just your own eyes, but those of all of us who are watching and saying, oh my gosh, what can we do here? And that's what I want to address today for our audience is how does virtual surgery evolve from the very first potential experience where it is today? You have a company called Medical Realities that we'll get to in a minute that actually leverages these very technologies. But let's talk about what we mean by virtual surgery, just a general definition, and then the technologies that enable it. And then we'll get into those technologies themselves, what is required to use them and where the applications have been most successful. How does that sound? So that's perfect. I'd like to start off with, it's okay, is to really bring the term digital surgery into the conversation. I think that's yes. the key concept. Now, one of the, um, if you go back a few years now, we've been in space for a while, there was this concept of digital health yes. that was kind of came That's out still, probably still about 10, 12 years ago, right? It's still there. Yeah. And now we will discuss that digital medicine, digital health. Digital surgery hasn't been around for very long, only right. for the last three, four, five years, maybe. And just now it's gaining traction. What does digital surgery mean? Well, it means how surgery we're more enabled with technology. So let's take a few examples. There's the robots that are coming in en masse more and more including the, the maker, of course, that you use for hip surgery and many general surgical robots out in the market space. We then talk about things like immersive technology, augmented, virtual reality, mixed reality, or extended reality as the term that encompasses all of those uh, areas. Then we talk about 5G connectivity. We're looking at more 
computer vision, AI, within the operating theatre, looking at how we can perform surgery, for example, in thoracoscopic, laparoscopic, arthroscopic, and have AI in the back end predicting the outcome of surgery. And then there's that whole data element, capturing all the data in the OR that we haven't captured before to personalise surgery in the future, to improve outcomes, and then also to assess performance, which has very been crudely analyzed before based on these metrics of infections, mortality, and morbidity, which are not really good markers of a good surgical practice ultimately. So that's the world we're living in. There's all these kind of pillars of digital surgery. What we'll talk about in this next half now with you, Stefano, is around the world of immersive technology. So I just want to very quickly tell the audience about the terminologies because it can be quite confusing. Yeah. So on the one hand, we have virtual reality, which is when you're enclosed in a headset, you can't see the outside world, you're in a virtual space. On the other side, something called augmented reality. Now, similar to, say, a fighter pilot wearing a helmet with overlaid information, similar to an overlaid information on a dashboard of a car, for example, on the windscreen, it's adding images or views of things in the real world. So you can walk around with glasses or headsets, but you can see the world and add information. That's augmented reality. And between those two is something we call mixed reality. It's of both of those worlds. And all of those terms, virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality, are called extended reality. So that's a terminology that people might get confused with. But what's that mean? I don't know what it means. I think I know what virtuality is. Well, that's what it is. And that's kind of where we are with immersive technology. And those are the technologies that we embed into the surgical experience to create a digital experience with our own surgery. So let's focus on the technology used in, in your company, which is primarily virtual reality. So let's get into the terminology in a little more detail. We already have had a session with uh, Justin Barad talking from Oso VR and their experience about using that technology for the purpose of educating. You've taken it one step further. You've added an element of education in, in the context. At least when I was in London, I got a chance to play a little bit with the platform. Let's talk a little bit about how you implemented the VR technology itself, what it does. And then I want to talk a little bit about how it actually works. If I was at a hospital and wanted to implement it or buy into it or as a resident to use it, what do I have to use? What do I have to have available to use it? So let's talk a little bit about the tech itself and then how it actually works. There's also security issues and standards to, to address. Yeah. Yeah. So great. Let's go back to the beginning. And if you go back to around 2013, 14, do you remember there's a chap called Palmer Lucky? Pamalaki was a kind of, I guess, innovator from the US who put up on one of these social channels to raise funds for a new concept at that stage called a VR headset, the Oculus, he called it. Now, headsets, VR headsets weren't new. They've been around for a long time, but suddenly the computing power became available for VR to be used in a different way. That was the key changer. And when he put that onto a crowdsource fund, he raised much more than you've expected. It showed the enthusiasm for people that wanted virtual reality as a concept. So the headset came out, the Oculus, and of course that was quite expensive at the time, but things have gradually become cheaper and cheaper, more affordable. So if you look at headsets for a quick second, we had two kinds of headsets. Those were the tethered headsets and untethered headsets. Tethered headsets meant that the, the device, the headset was connected to a really powerful computer to do all the computing work with animation and CGI, whatever it was. And so you had to be fixed into one space. As time has gone on, we've had more and more untethered devices. The more of the power of the computer is actually in the headset itself. So if you look at the iterations of Oculus, we're now onto Oculus Quest 2 over the years, which is now a standalone device, hugely powerful, and it's all connected to a store where you can download apps and things within the VR headset. You've got two controllers that can now, we've gone from 2D or 3D interfaces now to what's 4360, but also it's six degrees of freedom. What does that mean? 
It means in the VR space now, you can walk forwards, backwards, sideways, up and down, and actually move the whole space. So it allows you to completely experience almost real-life movements, which hasn't been available for that period of time. So technology has become more affordable, more cheaper, more mobile, and more powerful. Well, when we started also, remember, we had the mobile phone companies all vying for mobile VR. Samsung Gear VR, for example, led that charge. Google Pixel and Daydream came out as their own device that was attached to a smartphone. And of course, that was preceded originally by the Google Cardboard, a simple yep. cardboard headset, quick smartphone and experience VR very cheaply and affordably. And so we have all these kind of different types of headsets. But now, really, in 2021, it's mainly the untethered headsets that are defining who we are. And that's the Oculus Quest 2 that's come out, the HTC Vive, and the Pico. They're the three that really are currently in the market. So we've seen that whole drive. The other thing to understand about virtual reality is a concept of what we see inside. At the beginning, we're looking at these 360 videos. So for example, creating real-life 360-degree experiences. Now, I remember going back, there was no software available for this, really. We had to literally get a bunch of cameras, six GoPro cameras, and put them into a 3D-like um, little um, kind of stand so that they could all point in different directions. Then if you recall all of those individually, you'd have to go away and stitch each one together. So that suddenly you create this kind of 360-degrees view of the world. I remember the first operation that we recorded, we're the first to do this, by the way, to actually recreate a Twix video of a surgical operation. I remember it took one of our technical guys a whole week just to stitch it together to make it look as though it was 360. Now, of course, you can buy a device for about £100. It does it all automatic for you. It stitches it, puts it to your smartphone or your, or your platform. At the same time, YouTube in that time were producing their 360 platform. So you could upload the video in 360 and then you can whiz around on the new 360 platform. And we've produced the first video for YouTube from a surgical operation perspective and put it on that platform way back in about 2015. So then that lends itself well to create these new 360 environments. So that my story going forward now from that, from that 2040 episode of Google Glass was my next big kind of ambition, which was 2016, where I performed the world's first VR operation in 360. And that was, again, a major step in showing how technology could democratize health and education. What we did then, we worked medical realities at my company, worked with Matter Vision, and our hospital, Bart Self NHS Trust, to stream a live operation in 360. So that was actually me in the operating theatre forming a cancer operation streaming live through these cameras that we've created. And people then could, around the world, use headsets, tethered, untethered, or even their smartphone, Google Cardboard, to look at my operating theatre as if though they were transported into my OR from anywhere in the world. And that was a big, big change. That's, that meant that if I'm here in California and you're in London, and I wanted to watch how Shafi Ahmed does this particular cancer operation, I wouldn't be in the back of the room if I'd flown over to London and 12 people deep. I would be able to literally see what you're seeing from your point of view and be able to interface with the surgeon, assuming that allowed at the moment. But I'll, in my glance, as far as I'm concerned, I'm in the room right with you. Is that is that the experience that people would have had? Yes, it was. So we had the cameras perched just above the patient on the table. The cameras are hanging down, if you like. Okay, so just above my, around my eyesight. So, and that gives a 360 view. So if you're looking at that, you're there with me. You can look around, see the assistants, the anesthetists, see the kind of the anesthetic machines in the corner, the, the scrub up of the table. Work. Yeah, and you can see the operation. You can look down yeah. and see what's going on. And so it actually allowed you to be almost transported for the first mm. time into the OR from afar. I think what it demonstrated was, A, the fact that we could scale very quickly. The people enjoyed this experience. They wanted new ways of learning and being educated, not just by a 2D 
video, or indeed just an online platform. So I think it showed the utility very well. And also it showed that this was indeed possible, whatever technology was available at the time. Of course, that's got better and better and easier. But on that day, I remember, if you go back when I did my Google Glass operation and 14,000 people were kind of viewing that live operation, this time we had 55,000 people connected through these VR headsets around the world. And it's amazed that we reached people in 140 countries and 4,000 cities at the time, just showing you that just by thinking differently, scaling, people are going to be engaged. Uh, you know, students outside, trainees, surgical residents really wanted a better view of a surgical operation. They wanted to access knowledge. And I think on that front, it was very successful. And that thing achieved was the cost value. If you remember the Google Cardboard, the now has suddenly just become defunct only a few months ago. They finally stopped making Google Cardboards. So for a cost of Google Cardboards, which is about I don't know, $5, I think, maybe $10 at the very most, having a, a smartphone, which is ubiquitous, and everyone has a smartphone, and an app that accesses that information for free, for the price of $5, you could literally access information anywhere in the world. All you needed is a connectivity. 3G minimum, 4G, whatever. But just with that smartphone, you're empowering people around the world, saying, why can't you access information knowledge from around the world and not be limited by geography and also resources? Two things I have a huge problem with to overcome. And these are the kind of experiences that people are having. That's on the viewer side. What about from the transmitter side? What kind of resources are required if somebody were to want to do a virtual reality demonstration of a surgical technique? Yeah. Right? I mean, today it's changed an incredible amount. Before you need a whole team around you, lots of technology, but actually all you need now is a simple camera that captures a 360 video automatically and streams in one go. So that's one device you can put up and stream onto an app. So essentially all you need is that set up and then to literally click go when you want to go and give people access to the app that streams live, etc. What you need, a, the kind of viewer, you'd have to have a headset of some description. It could be a smartphone, but I'd say smartphone VR is now really gone. It's more about having a headset like I said before, the Oculus Quest 1 or 2 or indeed Pico or the HC5, a standalone headset that gives you quite good, I guess, quality of video. So that's all you would need. So you'd need a headset that could be connected to access the feed that was coming through from the OR. So that has changed an awful lot. And the quality has changed. Remember, we're now at 4K, 8K resolution, if not more, these videos look at real life content. What I'd say also, though, what I realized about these 360 videos, although they had a wow factor, you know, you, wow, you can do this in 360 and I can be with you in the OR, Stefano, it wasn't enough for me. It was a wow factor for five or 10 minutes. But what's the learning? How do you add something more to that? Get people to come back routinely. So what we did then, and we'll talk about medical realities as we go forward, is actually create learning around that video. We recorded it, segmented it into small parts, into areas of the operation. Let's take, for example, a laparoscopic cholestectomy, a gallbladder operation. It was about the positioning of the patient, insertion of ports into the umbilicus, three other ports. Then, of course, it's uh, hitching up the gallbladder, identifying Callot's triangle, then dissection Callot's triangle, clipping the cystic duct artery, then dissection of the gallbladder bed, then removal through a bag. So then you create these small parts in VR, which actually adds more value to learning. And then you add learning around that, about why do we do this operation? You know, What's the reasons? How do gallstones form? What's for, what complications can they happen? What can go wrong with surgery, for example? How do you deal with complications? So that one video becomes part of a wider knowledge base, which is what people want, right? 
that's what we've been doing in medical reality for the past five years to understand this kind of new area of knowledge transfer. So you've moved from the real-time Q&A concept to a more recorded experience. You found out that a synchronous experience might actually be more valuable because you can layer it in an element of education. Do you think both are still have a, have a place? Both have a place. I think both the different concepts. One is people want to see some live surgery. Look, during the pandemic over the last year or so, my own medical students at the Royal London, for example, were not allowed to come to the OR. I'm sure it's not the same in San Francisco. So they were banned from coming to the hospital, banned from the OR. So they lacked the years of clinical experience. And in fact, the pandemic has worked almost to our advantage. Everyone's crying out for virtual learning or immersive technology. So a year ago or a year and a half ago, I guess the barriers for adoption were much higher. Now I'd say there's a less barriers for adoption. People are looking for virtual kind of experiences, virtual learning, remote learning, as we are doing via Zoom and Teams and other things. So now I've seen that paradigm shift in the vast majority of medical schools, hospital institutions, surgical departments saying, how do we incorporate this? So now there's two elements. One is live recording, mentorship, uh, I guess, and preceptorship using live technologies, either like Proxime by Nadine, for example, and others, allowing you to do streaming of live operations. And I know J&J, Johnson Johnson, working with rods and cones to use these glasses that can stream now much better than the Google Glass did when I was uh, doing it six, seven years ago. So that still remains a good concept. The other bit is how do you record that and package it in a different way? And that's where the, I think the, the 360 video the CG animation adds another set of values. So education is a kind of continuum with lots of areas where different technologies can add value. So it's not one size fits all. It's how do you use this part? How do you use VR? How do you use AR? How do you use live streaming? And all of those now at the moment are creating a much more powerful medium to engage our uh, students with. And it gives you, Stefano, the power to share that knowledge in different ways that we haven't had before. You know, that last discussion you just had with us, the last piece was really terrific because you, you kind of re-encapsulated everything. You brought everything back together again for us about what uh, digital surgery is and how these technologies are enabling it. And that the technology itself is moving so quickly that the barriers to entry that you may have had five years ago, four years ago, when you had to jerry-rig your own cameras of multiple devices set up, taped to a central post. Now it's just one device that automatically streams with the information and can be visualized by any resident anywhere. This idea of reaching 15,000 people, 50,000, 100,000 is phenomenal. But I got to tell you, when I do some of the operations that I do in these little tiny incisions where the information is deep to the incision, I'm more or less the only one who can see. And actually being able to share that view just with the residents in the room, never mind 10,000 other people, will actually massively improve their experience and their learning. So I think that the micro level, as well as the macro level, these technologies for the purpose of improving our ability to educate is going to be really, really helpful. And hopefully the, by lowering the barrier to entry to these technologies, I think we'll be able to see broader adoption. Shafi, in the last two minutes, looking forward 10 years, what do you think will be the status quo for digital surgery? Okay, it's a great question. I think we'll have more of a convergence of those technologies. At the moment, they seem to be disparate. So when I explained at the beginning, we have robots, we have immersive technology, we have these data, we have AI, we have computer vision. They seem quite distinct. What we'll see in the next 10 years is them converging. We'll see robots, robotic surgery with, with AI, with AR, with big data analytics, for example. We'll see immersive technology based on using other, maybe 5G connectivity, et cetera. So all of these things will now become the kind of 
the OR of the future. And it's a question about how they get organised in the OR, what the utilities are for training, for teaching, for improving standards. So we'll see a complete different place of work in the OR that's going to be literally measuring our outcomes better, personalising care better, improving standards and improving education. So the key word for me is the convergence of these technologies that will empower all of us to improve the experience for both patients and surgeons in the OR. In some ways, you're talking about not so much digital surgery, but the digitalization of the surgical experience. Yeah, indeed, that is the correct terminology to use. And these technologies will just help us do that on our journey. And remember, we've never had these before, Stefano. We've had the richness of the technologies at our fingertips. So it's for us to design the processes that are going to be helpful. Remember, it's not about finding solutions where there's no problem. We have to find the problems we have to solve. So throwing technologies at a problem isn't the answer. It's seeing how they fit with our own understanding of where we need to be, what we need to collect, what information we need to have, enable those systems to be applied to create those solutions for problems that we're seeing on a daily basis. Hopefully, it'll help you in the future about your aspiration of how do you teach people complex hip surgery and in holes that you can't see properly. How do you assess your own quality? How do you improve your own standards so that you can actually provide the competency to carry out these operations in the future? So I think that's going to be the key for all of us. You know, one thing we didn't, as we're talking, there's a very interesting concept that's also happening. You mentioned about this technology helping us be better surgeons and better visualizers. I know that in laparoscopic surgery, we now have technology that will highlight structures that are at, at risk for damage in your visual field, sort of an augmented reality experience. Want to talk a little bit about that and how you think that's going to develop? Because that's also part of the digital surgery evolution. Yes, one of the key pillars is around perioperative mapping and perioperative kind of navigation tools. Okay, so what we're seeing now is companies like Digital Surgery, who used to be Touch Surgery, for example, and others. And I sat on the AI panel for AI Med just this week, talked to a number of experts from around the world around their ideas of using these technologies. So the idea for, say, laparoscopic cholecystectomy, let's say that example, would be that you put the cameras in, and with some AI and deep machine learning, it tells you immediately where the important zones are in the cholecystectomy. You know, the danger areas around colon bile duct compared to safe areas that are visualized around the gallbladder fundus, for example, and it shows you where to navigate. You may show important structures highlighting them. Also, what we're seeing is a kind of a pathway. As it recognizes structures, it tells the team, the scrub nurse, everyone else, about the next steps. Okay, we've got this far, get prepared for this next step of surgery. This is what we're going to need, this instrument, that instrument, whatever it is. So predicting the kind of the outcome, the kind of the evolution of an operation. So making it much easier for people to navigate. But as we go forward, I mean, I think overlay information is another area that's going to come in at some point. And you might have come across these AR platforms. Uh, my friend Maki Sakamoto from, from Japan with HollowEyes is working on these MRIs and CTs overlay on the real patient, for example. So, for example, you could see a tumor in the future because you can see the image overlaid on a liver or a kidney, for example. It could allow you to resect it better, to allow you to have good margins. It could tell you about the local structures around it, for example. So right. it's still quite rudimentary at the moment, but I think in the future it would point to that. And orthopedics and spinal surgery has been really great at this because you have fixed bony landmarks that can be fixed. The abdomen things move around all the time much harder. Yes. But with yeah. orthopedics and spines and everything else, because it's fixed, the overlay information and actually hopefully make a surgery more precise, you can plan it better, putting injections in, for example, into the spinal frame or whatever it is, or epidurals, or and think about what disc you're going to resect, whatever it is. It gives you much more information to make that decision, I think, more 
better based on real anatomical findings. So yeah. I think that's that's advantage. And just to clarify for our audience who may not be surgeons, when you put a hammer into the abdomen, things aren't labeled. The liver is not labeled as liver and the gallbladder right next is not labeled as gallbladder. In fact, they're all more or less the same color. And then, especially if you start getting into abnormal anatomy where there's a tumor moving something away from something else, you could suddenly push an artery in a place it isn't and make it highly susceptible to damage, which then floods the field of view of blood, which then makes it very difficult to treat. And having these technologies guide you is actually quite helpful. And even the bone work we do, some of the stuff I've seen around hologram technologies where you we can't currently see behind a damaged structure. We don't know what's behind it, but using an MRI or CAT scan that can create a virtual image of that same space, I can now remove a segment and implant a broken bone, see what's behind it in my visual field, and then put it back in. So I'm always in the safe zone. So I don't think most non-surgeons wouldn't necessarily know that. They would kind of assume that everything is laid out there with label. It looks very nice, different color-coded, but it isn't. And this technology does provide that exact thing, literally labels it and color codes it. So it's exciting. We're looking at a brave new world, Shafi. Indeed, indeed. And it's exciting. And it's great to share that journey with you, Stefano. Likewise. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast and educating us about where we've been with digital surgery, with this technologies, how we're applying augmented reality, mixed reality, what we called what we termed a mixed reality into a space that hasn't before had these opportunities, understanding how to implement them, understanding also that technology is getting ubiquitously accessible. Now that people have learned from you what it is and how it works, maybe they'll be inspired to try it and to implement it and to go out there and do a better job educating or educating themselves about the opportunities out there. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, exploring the building blocks of digital health. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to see you soon on the next episode of Digital Health 101 on Digital Health Today. What's going on with the medical reality? So obviously before this whole pandemic, it was a bit of a, there's a lot of barriers, you know, headsets and people weren't ready for new change, blah, blah. But last year, wow people's interest has accelerated. Mm. Uh, medical schools around the world are crying out for some virtual learning. So the understanding has changed. People's are willing to adopt these technologies. So now, for example, Health Education England, which is our kind of post-grad educational kind of uh, part of the government, if you like, of NHS, which is funded to the tune of about four billion for all people training, have now just spent a whole lot of money around immersive tech bring into post-grad education. So that's been a big change in mindset. So it's a much better space than we were before. And what kind of feedback are you getting from users? Good. Oh, very good. I mean, overall, they like the experiences. There's a 90% kind of positivity rate, i.e. in terms of saying this is great, we should learn more with this, etc. And all of our little validation, not a huge amount in terms of numbers, have all been much the same. There's a lot of energy and enthusiasm amongst students. They think it's good learning. If you look at the evidence from, say, the Cooper stuff about a year ago, during the pandemic, they demonstrated over, I think they had about a thousand people doing VR learning, and they showed a huge improvement in engagement, speed of learning, becoming more cheaper for the company to create VR training for people and better engagement overall. So they showed a huge improvement in what they learned, how they learned, how they engaged with that. So now we're seeing that kind of validation come through. So overall, it does appear to be a better experience than what they have already. I'd say it augments their work. You know, for example, 
OSCE training, uh, objective structural examination, as you know, becomes the kind of the way we run the exams for clinical work. And they can be created reasonably well. We have done in VR. So you can actually take away the amount of patients you need, the resources, the areas you need to cover, and do it all quite remotely. So in terms of training. So it does add a lot of value.